You're listening to Sweet Talk, all things maple. Welcome to Sweet Talk. I'm your host, Aaron Whiteman, co-director of the Cornell Maple Program at Cornell University. Joining me from the Adirondacks is my colleague and co-host, Adam Wild. Hi, Adam. Hi, Aaron. How are things in central New York? Is your uh, sugaring season mostly wrapped up? Yeah, we finished a bit early this year due to warm weather in March. It's now late April, and we're chipping away at untapping and cleaning up. We did try retapping a section of woods because we needed late season sap for research on buddy flavor development. But even in late March, we had a string of days with highs in the 80s, and it just put an end to that effort. It was simply impossible to collect sap. It was just too hot. Uh, So we're all finished. How about you? Last time we talked, it was 60 degrees here in New York, but you were walking around in the woods on snowshoes and a thick snowpack. What's the situation now? Yeah, we did have a thick snowpack in the early start of the maple season, but that snowpack instantly vanished after a night of rain and warm weather and followed by a heat wave with summer-like temperatures that caused our maple buds to just swell and kind of quickly end our season, unfortunately. It was a really short season, only about three weeks for maple producers in high elevations up here in northern New York. Yeah, lots of reports about strange weather this year, so that's something we'll have to perhaps visit in future episodes. But for now, we're done. And Adam is one of the few people in the world who understand the hectic schedule of a maple specialist during maple season. I'd just like to congratulate you on surviving another year. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. You as well. Maple season is definitely tough because we're not only you know making maple syrup at the commercial scale, but we're also trying to do research projects and also educate the public at the same time. And sometimes it's pretty hard to keep up with everything. Yeah, that's putting it mildly, you know, working those 100-hour weeks and then trying to get to the computer and answer questions is hard. So that's one of the things we definitely have trouble keeping up with is questions we get in the email during the season. So for today's episode, we're going to dig into that electronic mailbag and answer some of those questions on the show. Are you ready, Adam? Sure. Let's get right to it. What's our first question? Okay, Adam, our first question was submitted by Jack, and it was addressed specifically to you, and it reads, Adam, I was wondering... After your article about early tapping not being counterproductive, how late can or should you pull taps? Is the research clear? Wouldn't it be nice if we could pull old taps and place new ones at the same time? Thanks. So what do you think, Adam? Maybe before we talk about pulling spouts, should we talk a little bit about tap timing and the mixed results of that research? Yeah, Aaron, I think what Jack's referring to is some research that my predecessor had started here, and then I did another year of work of looking at tapping at different times in the year. And other people have looked at that as well. So looking at, you know, if you tap your trees in January versus February, or even in this part in kind of March, right when the season's getting started, you know, how does that impact production? Because when we put that tap hole into the tree, we're thinking about there is that potential of microbes getting into that tap hole, starting to grow and plug up those holes. So if we tap a tree earlier in the calendar year, there's more potential time that that tap hole is open and microbes can grow within that tap hole. Yeah, I guess the the key message is that tap holes have a limited lifespan. And we try to line up that lifespan to catch as many as of the sap run days as we can. And, you know, what time we, we start the tapping can really influence that. But there are other things at play as well, including how good is your tap hole sanitation? How well do you sanitize your tubing? Because if you sanitize your tubing well, then you have a longer window to operate in. So you can tap earlier without penalty. So I think that's one of the key takeaway messages. And the other one being that there's an element of luck to it. 
because we can't predict exactly when the SAP runs will occur. We're just trying to use our experience, the historical data, and just kind of line that up with the most likely period to catch as much SAP as possible. Yeah, I think that's right, Aaron. And from that research that I did, as long as we had you know clean drops that were new drops and new spouts, so there's good sanitation, actually it didn't really matter too much versus if we tapped in kind of later January versus in later February. As long as we were catching the majority of the runs, because we had good clean sanitation, so the tap holes didn't plug up as easily. But I've also done that, still using new spouts, but drop lines that were not as clean, and found that if you tap too early, that can actually cause some plugging in that tap hole later in the season, so your flow may not be as great as if you waited till, say, right before the maple season started, so for us in kind of late February. So it really does depend on that sanitation that you're using for when you can actually tap that tree and how well it's going to continue to flow throughout the whole season to really maximize that production. So with good sanitation, you can get away with tapping early. But what about the other part of this question, the idea of leaving those taps in all year until you come back and retap next year and then pull your old spouts at that time and save a trip to the woods? Does that make any sense? Yes, that's a great thought. And that would be really nice, you know, to save that time from having to go out, especially when we're tired after the maple season. But that's not great for the trees. It's best to get out there and pull that tap from the tree as soon as you can when the season ends. Trees want to heal on their own. Trees have this natural mechanism to heal on their own. And by leaving that tap hole in there, you can actually prevent and delay some of that healing process. So it's best to get out there as soon as possible. You may still have some sap that dribbles out you know, if you get a little bit of freezing thawing, but that's okay. The tap hole will dry up on that tree and it'll heal on its own. So it's best to get the spouts out of the tree as quickly as possible. Don't put anything in the hole and just let it heal on its own. And that's for any tree wound, not just tapping. Yeah, so in a, in a healthy sugar bush, your trees will heal their tap holes typically within one to three years. And they do that in two main ways. First, they wall off the wound with non-conductive wood. And the second way is by growing new sap wood over the top of the old tap hole. And by leaving the spout in, you would delay those processes. And instead of having your tree heal in one to three years, you would have it heal in two to four years. And during that extra time when it's not healing, that tap hole is exposed to potential pathogens like fungal infections. So really, it's a bad idea to draw that healing process out any longer than you need to. And it's, I guess the, in this case, the research is pretty clear and the guidance is very clear. You definitely do not want to leave your taps in until the following season. You want to pull them as soon as you're done making syrup. Yeah, those are great points, Aaron. And being out pulling taps when your buds are kind of opening up is a great time to be in the woods and seeing the the spring wildflowers starting to emerge from the ground. Yeah, and listening to Sweet Talk. <laughs> exactly. So moving on to the next question, and I don't have a specific listener question to read, but we do get quite a few inquiries about how to pick the right vacuum pump. And this is a tricky topic because there's really a lot of factors that determine how much vacuum you can actually get at the tree. And that's important, not you know the vacuum at the pump, but what we get at the tree. So when thinking about vacuum pumps specifically, what are the key things to look for, Aaron? Yeah, this is a great question and something that my former colleague, who many of you may know, Steve Childs, looked at pretty extensively when he was creating the, the vacuum and tubing notebook. So I gave Steve a call for his perspective on this. Let's hear what he had to say. 
starting point for picking a vacuum pump is to understand your system and just how much line loss you're likely to experience because that will affect the size of pump that you'll need. And when you're trying to decide how big of a pump as far as CFM at the vacuum you would like to operate it, we did a fair amount of research on that and came up with this general figure of you need one CFM for every 100 taps, but you need that at the tap. So therefore, paying attention to your how many taps are on a line, how many CFM are you pulling through those lines, and checking the charts to see how many CFM you're losing to just plain resistance has to enter the picture. Yeah, so Steve makes a really good point that one of the first big metrics you need to look at in assessing a vacuum pump is how much air it can move, cubic feet per minute of air, so the CFM capacity of the pump. But before you can even look at that and determine what you need at your pump, you need to understand your system and understand how many CFMs you're going to be losing, especially to that natural leak rate that occurs in the woods. So that's the first thing to do is go out in the woods, look at your system, go to the Cornell Vacuum and Tubing Notebook and understand the tables and understand how much CFM capacity you actually need before you go and look at a pump. Yeah, and just to back up a little bit, Aaron, I think when thinking about CFM, I think it's important to understand that when we're removing air, CFM being that cubic feet per minute, you know, when we're talking about that, we're referring to removing that air out of our system as quickly as possible, right? That's our key, you know, to create vacuum is we need to get any air that's leaking in from any little tiny micro leaks or larger, even if they're larger squirrel chews or untapped drop lines. We want to remove that air as quickly as possible. And Unfortunately, when we're removing air, there's resistance that can build up. And so if your pipe is too small, it's not going to be able to get out as quickly. And so I like to almost think of it as like trying to imagine running down a big wide open tunnel versus running down a tunnel that has a bunch of turns into it that are 90 degree turns. It's going to slow you down. You're not going to be able to run as fast or trying to run through a culvert that's only two or three feet in diameter where you're going to have to crawl and you're not going to be able to go as fast. And the kind of the same thing for the air. So if our tubing lines are too small, that air is not going to be able to evacuate as quickly. Or if we have a lot of fittings with a lot of elbows, that's going to slow down our air. So those are all kind of factors that you have to think into your whole entire system as well. Yeah, that's, that's a good metaphor. I guess another way I would think about it is like drinking through a tiny straw versus a big straw. And if you've ever gotten one of those little Capri Sun drink pouches, they come with that tiny little straw and you can just barely suck the liquid through it. And the same thing is true for air. It's more difficult to suck large volumes of air through a small opening, not just because of the volume, but also because the increased surface area to volume ratio. So there's more, a higher percentage of the air is rubbing along the sides of the tube, creating friction, which slows it down. And that's, that's the same thing you're referring to, right, Adam? Yeah, exactly. You know, and it, it seems really odd, but in reality, we actually need more volume capacity in our tubing lines to remove the air out of the system than we actually do for volume capacity for the sap that's moving down through our system into our collection area. Right. And I guess that leads to the kind of the, the next point or the bigger point that your vacuum pump is only as good as the system that you attach it to. 
So really understanding how vacuum would work in your tubing system is really key. And this is where it gets tedious, I think, for some people is getting into the vacuum and tubing notebook, looking at the equations and understanding how much air you can actually move through three-quarter inch tubing versus one inch tubing. And that will also depend on the length or the distance to the taps and the number of taps on the line and, uh, and the slope of the line. And so understanding those key factors is really critical before you get to the point where you can say, okay, this is the pump I need. Yeah, that's right. And that vacuum and tubing notebook is really handy. Some of the topics in that notebook can be a little dense and a little bit challenging to think about. You may have to read through it a couple of times, but it is really important. So I highly recommend folks to check out that and refer that when you're trying to size your operation. And like you said, you know, the number of leaks you have is really going to change that. And so if you've, you know, in theory, if you've got a really, really tight system without leaks, you know, you don't really need that big of a pump. It's going to take a while to get to high vacuum to remove all that air. But if you have a really, really tight system, your pump doesn't really need to be that big. Um, But if you've got maybe an older tubing system with a lot of manifolds that might leak, or you're you know, maybe working a full-time job and doing maple on the side where you can't spend as much time out vacuum checking for various leaks, it's important to have maybe a little bit higher capacity pump to get better vacuum at the tree. Yep, all good points. And then once you finally do get to the point where you're ready to assess what size pump you need or ready to pick a pump, it's also important to understand the CFM ratings that pumps are given And for this, Steve had one more important tip to offer. One of the first things I think about when I would look at buying a vacuum pump is at what level is it rated? Is it rated at zero inches of vacuum? Is it rated at 15? Is it rated at 20? Because that makes a huge difference as to how many taps that unit actually can operate. And in my days there as the maple specialist, I ran into several situations where People had bought a pump thinking they were rated at 15, found out later they were rated at zero, and that just cut in half what they thought that pump could do. Yeah, that's a really important note that Steve made to really understand your individual pump and its performance at various vacuum levels. That That's really key to understand. Yeah, and this is another area that can get complicated about vacuum because It's not only rated at different vacuum levels sometimes, the CFM capacity, but also some pump manufacturers use a terminology called actual CFM, which is an attempt to standardize the language around how much CFM a pump can can actually move, but it doesn't really help clarify anything. So if you get to this point in your decision-making process and you're confused, I highly recommend that you just reach out to either Adam or I and, and we'll help you understand the pump's rating. But hopefully it'll be pretty straightforward and you can get set up with the right size pump. So moving on to our next question, this comes from Jim who asks, when transferring sap from extractor to storage tank, why does foam develop and what is it? A concentration of sugar? So how about it, Adam? What causes foam in sap when we're moving it around and what, if anything, should we do about it? Yeah, it's something that's not really of a concern. It's kind of a natural process that is going to happen within sap anytime we're kind of agitating. So when it's coming through, you know, into our extractors and removing that or dumping into a storage tank, having foam buildup is pretty natural and common. 
especially later in the season, that can happen a little bit more with the microbes. So some of that does have to do with the microbes that you have. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the sugars that are in there, but it's usually more the microbe population that are in there that will create the natural kind of foam or bubbling. Have you experienced that before in your production, Aaron? Yeah, definitely later in the season and also sometimes early in the season when those first runs are kind of scouring the last little bit of residue out of the lines, if there is any in there. And really what this is about is surface tension. That's what creates bubbles. And water on its own doesn't have a whole lot of surface tension, which is why when you agitate water, you just get little bubbles that quickly pop. But if you add something to the liquid that increases surface tension, and in this instance, it would be residue from microbes, so things like amino acids and things like that, those can increase surface tension a lot, and so you get a lot more bubbling. But unless you've added something to your tubing, like a detergent or something that you shouldn't have, then these bubbles really aren't cause for concern. They're they're just an artifact of the lines having a little bit of biological residue left in them from the sap or the bacteria that break it down. So not something that you should be terribly concerned about. And for anybody who's made bread before, done anything with yeast, or made any type of alcohol, you know, that bubbling that forms, you know, there's microbial activity and fermentation happening in our sap. So the foam that builds up from the agitation is one thing, but also you can get kind of the foam or bubbles forming even when your tank is sitting there still because of some of that little bit of fermentation that's happening and the CO2 that's being released. Yeah, a little bit of respiration from our microbes. Exactly. They need they need to breathe as well. Yep. And I'll just, as a final interesting anecdote, I've been experimenting with ultrafiltration technology and ultrafiltration actually removes bacteria and yeast from the sap or from concentrate. And when I ultrafilter concentrate or sap, it doesn't really bubble at all and it doesn't make much foam in the evaporator either. So that that points pretty strongly to the fact that these microbes are responsible for a lot of that foam formation that's happening when you agitate your sap. That's interesting to hear, and I'm glad you, you added that in there. And I've seen the pictures uh, of your ultra-filtered and not-filtered sap um, and concentrate and from some other producers as well. It's pretty amazing what that ultra-filtration can do to really clarify the sap and concentrate. Yeah, it's amazing technology for sure and something we'll be learning more about over the coming years. This next question comes from a listener who wishes to remain anonymous, and they ask, how do I protect my tubing system from munching damage by squirrels and other rodents? So Aaron, do you have any tips for preventing wildlife damage to your tubing? Yeah, it's inevitable that when we put tubing out in the woods that we will sustain some wildlife damage. And this can come from a wide variety of wildlife. We like to point to squirrels as the primary culprit, but We don't really know always who's doing the damage because we don't see it. We have guesses. Most rodents, squirrels, mice, etc., do need to chew to maintain their teeth. So you can imagine that tubing would be an attractive target because it's very chewable. But other wildlife are attracted to tubing for different reasons. We get damage from coyotes, fishers, bears potentially, you name it. If it has teeth, it might chew on your tubing. And even things that don't have teeth might chew, like insects can damage tubing under certain circumstances. So that becomes a big challenge if it's a wide variety of wildlife attacking this big tubing system that sprawls through our woods. And for example, at the Arnott Forest, we have almost 50 miles of tubing in the woods. And trying to harden that tubing against attack would be pretty difficult. So we really don't do any interventions where we try to actually protect the tubing per se. But there are some options out there. 
What do you do in your woods, Adam, to try to minimize wildlife damage? Yeah, from a defense of actually trying to do anything to the tubing directly, I don't do anything along that lines. Um, there are some guards, kind of spring-like coils that you can put around tubing or on drop lines and kind of anywhere it's near trees. So you don't have to do all your lines or sprays like hot pepper sprays. I've never tried any of that. It's an added cost. There's time to do all of that where I find it best to just have boots on the ground, trying to fix any leaks that are out there, checking often, having a good monitor, working monitoring system so we can know if there are chews that are causing vacuum level drops in places. Then another aspect, you know, I have witnessed kind of in my woods that usually we get more chewing marks, typically in areas where we have a lot of softwoods, kind of conifers, where a lot of rodents usually like to nest and hang out. So in some areas, we've gone in and maybe cleaned out some understory softwoods to try to make it more hardwoods. I think has helped a little bit in keeping rodents away, but they definitely come into hardwood areas as well. And it's something that it's part of nature and a part of, you know, the wild forest that we work in that we have to deal with. Yeah. And I guess there, there are two approaches that I have some experience with. And the first is trying to control the populations of some of these damaging agents in the woods. So squirrels in particular, and I just don't think that's effective. These are creatures that have incredible reproductive capacity for the most part, mice and squirrels and things like that. They can produce an incredible number of offspring. And I think it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to control their numbers by trapping or shooting. Although there are provisions in the law for that. So you're allowed to do that if you, you follow the right regulations. But my general philosophy is that if there's an area that gets damaged repeatedly, then I just remove that from the system. You know, that old phrase to render under Caesar, that which is Caesar's. So that's my tithe that I pay to the woodland creatures. If there's a spot that they think is theirs, then I give it to them. And I just don't put tubing in that spot anymore. And usually that is through a softwood area. So like a hemlock grove or something like that. If I try to pull a tube through there, a lateral line, it just gets chewed up over and over again. Then I just stop trying in that area and let the, let the squirrels have that as their habitat. Yeah, interesting to hear, Aaron. And I think there are years that are worse than others. You know, you will have some years that are bad, but maybe the next year will be better. And a lot of times that has to do with kind of mass to seed years. So for rodents, what's the rodent population? So having a lot of damage to your tubing may actually be a good thing because that might mean that you have a lot of seed production and your regeneration in your forest is actually going to be good. So you can look on the bright side that way. Yeah, I've definitely seen increased damage after a good mass year. And we we've got our maple tree's loaded with seed right now this year in our woods. So I suspect we're going to have a, a boom in the, the rodent population following that. And I guess the, the last thing I would say is just that this points to another obvious thing that we should all be doing, but it just reinforces it that tubing systems need to be maintained regularly. And that means spending the time in the woods to make repairs, but also maybe making the case for a monitoring system. And every time we talk to big producers and ask, what's the one technology that you would point to as being the biggest game changer for keeping you productive in the woods? They always say monitoring systems. So if you haven't thought about a monitoring system before and you're struggling with wildlife damage, then this might be a, a good time to think about getting one. Yeah, I would agree. You can't replace that time with kind of out in the woods, checking your lines and everything. I would, I would encourage folks to you know, instead of thinking about how can we get rid of the squirrels, but think even about how can I increase my efficiency 
in processing my sap and syrup so I'm not spending all my time in the sugar house, but I can actually get out and spend time in the woods. I think that's key. One thing that we did here at the Line Forest this past year was we actually upgraded to a new reverse osmosis system that has higher capacity so I can process the sap a lot faster, but I also have the ability to have the reverse osmosis connected to the internet with some automated valves and I can actually operate the reverse osmosis system from out in the woods so I can turn it on and off and control it from in the woods so I can spend time out there checking for vacuum leaks and also doing all my research data collection as well. Yeah, that's a good point, Adam. Freeing up time to do the system maintenance is is really the key because we're never going to keep the squirrels from chewing the tubing entirely. Yeah, so think about ways that we can improve, you know, or increase our time, improve efficiency, and deal with the things that we can manage. So our next question comes from Sam, and he asks, I'm taking over the family 2000 tap operation, but it's old school dirt floors and very poor tubing infrastructure with no vacuum pumps at this time. A new sugar house to be food grade compatible is for sure a must, along with tubing updates and vacuum pumps. I'm wondering if there's any maple-minded lenders that see the business potential in the maple industry to access some funding for bringing this from a hobby to a real food grade operation. Thanks for your time, and I love the podcast. Well, thanks for the question, and also for the feedback on the show, Sam. This is also a common question as the maple industry continues to grow rapidly. Right, Adam? Yeah, it's definitely, it's a really big question. I feel like we're getting more and more because commercial viability often means growing, which, you know, then means new equipment and facilities. And as many of our listeners know, modern maple equipment is getting pretty sophisticated and also really expensive. You know, so this is a great question, Aaron. Are you aware of resources for producers looking to finance their growth with grants and loans? Well, for an answer to that question, rather than ask a forester like me, we turn to our friend and colleague, Mark Canella, who is an extension associate professor and farm business management specialist at the University of Vermont Extension. Yeah, so this is a great question. Accessing capital for a small mid-scale maple producer that wants to get up to that next scale, maybe add a few thousand taps or perhaps overhaul their sugaring facility to match where they are for, for taps. I'm coming from Vermont where we've got a small number of lenders that are familiar with Maple. We do have offices now, Farm Credit East, that is actively lending into Maple. So that's one credit source that is familiar with Maple, familiar a bit about the business profile, understanding some of the uncertainty, which can come into play as far as even scheduling payback, understanding that a monthly payback may not be appropriate for a really seasonal crop. So I know many people that have negotiated sort of different terms where they maybe pay back once or twice a year and it's timed with where they're going to generate their income from Maple. I'm not here to to endorse particular lenders, but I will say that we've, we've got that. And we also have uh, another quasi-state lending agency that's got missions from the state that has a prevailing portfolio of agri- agriculture and forestry. So we have another source there that's got a group of people that are familiar with agriculture and the dynamics of agriculture more so than maybe a standard commercial bank would have. Uh, and there are options. There are definitely options. I also would say farm service agency is another specific option that could be explored. The thing about approaching a lender, I think there's a respect for the banking community and then also sometimes a little bit of a fear about how to approach them. In general, we know that lenders want to make sure that the businesses borrow responsibly. 
They, they don't, no one wants to see irresponsible borrowing or an unfortunate situation. So we really encourage prospective borrowers to get right out there and contact loan officers and share their idea and ask the loan officer what it is that they need to provide them to give the full story back to the lending agency. So the lending agency can do its job and sort of work with them to understand what may be an appropriate product or appropriate terms. Generally, that means the development of a business plan. Generally, it means getting financial statements in order and budget projections in order. All good things for both parties to have. If people are not familiar with that, the first couple steps can seem a little daunting. But generally, I've seen a lot of partnership between people that are looking to borrow and then those, those lending agencies that are you know, willing and looking to support the industry. So it sounds like good business management practices really come into play here. You don't want to wander into the bank unprepared and say, hey, I was thinking about growing a sugar bush. What do you got? But instead, come in prepared and understand your capacity to generate revenue, what your costs will be, and whether a loan makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. And the lending community often uses the terminology of the the five C's of credit. And this is a real test to see if I can get them right. But they're going to look at, they're going to look at collateral. They will look at the, the asset situation for the business now or the projection. So C for collateral. They're going to look at credit worthiness. They're going to do credit and background checks. They're going to look at capacity, which is the capacity to make payments which will be informed by a, a budget forecast, generally two to three years, to show that as the business gets to where it needs to be, it can, it can make those payments. So we've got collateral, credit, capacity, and then we've got character, which is getting to that point of like, is this a relationship that both parties feel good about? And that gets to your point about, you know, having a respectful conversation and then understanding when it's the opportunity for the, the prospective lending to provide that information, you know, in a reasonable format so that the, the lenders can work with it. And the fifth C, I think, is climate, you know, understanding the business climate. And I'd say for any small business producer, they should be aware of the business climate around them, you know, supply issues, costs, market prices, because the lender certainly wants to put that into the equation to make sure that everything works out. Yeah, so Mark makes some great points about lending, and there are certainly options for maple producers who want to borrow money from commercial lending firms. But it's important to remember that you need to have good business management practices before you walk in there. And I think that's what Mark's referring to is making sure you have your ducks in a row, have a business plan, understand your costs, understand what your real net profit is and things like that before you walk in and start asking for money. But aside from commercial lending, are there other other resources that are available, financially speaking, Adam? Yeah, there are a couple options, Aaron, for some grant opportunities. Unfortunately, it's kind of limited within the maple industry, but a great place to start is either with your local soil and water conservation district or the Natural Resource Conservation District Office, NRCS. And those two offices usually work very close together and oftentimes are in the same building in your county. And usually each county has an NRCS and soil and water conservation district office. And the Natural Resource Conservation Service, NRCS, they have an EQIP program, which usually involves some conservation management programs, but also requires an energy audit. So they come in and do an energy audit and they'll look at ways that you can help upgrade some of your equipment and get a cost share to cover the cost of upgrading that equipment. So maybe that's installing a reverse osmosis machine or getting a more efficient, you know, a reverse osmosis machine that can maybe concentrate to a higher level 
or maybe a more efficient evaporator. So there are some options there to do a cost share. Usually you have to pay kind of upfront for that money, but they give a percentage and sometimes even upwards of 90% that they will cover and reimburse you afterwards. So it's definitely worth checking out those programs and seeing what's available. Also, there's some usually some grant programs for some conservation work done. So if you needed to put in maybe some some culverts or kind of bridges for crossing any streams or maybe some erosion control and some roadways. And there's also some grant opportunities out there as well. Well, those sound like some great resources. So if our listeners are interested, we encourage them to check those out. And if they have trouble locating those programs, they're certainly welcome to email us and and we can help out. Yeah, happy to point folks in the right direction. One other one that I would point out is the Farm Service Agency, FSA. Each county usually has one or a region has an FSA office. They also have some lending programs that can be applied for Maple. And they're usually around product storage. And so if you needed to purchase sap storage tanks or even buildings for putting sap tanks into, they can help lend money for that. You know, it's much like lending through any credit agency, sometimes the rates might be a little bit better though. So it's worth exploring that option as well. And I think it can even be used for some sugar houses, especially if you're going to be storing syrup within there. So there are options from Farm Service Agency as well. And Farm Service Agency, I'll also point out, has a crop insurance program that can be applied for maple as well. So if you wanted to insure your crop, so if there is going to be a concern of a bad season. If you had crop insurance through Farm Service Agency, then you can get reimbursement for any loss that you missed out from that particular maple season by having a bad weather year or whatever. Yeah, so there you have it, Sam. Lots of resources available for growing your 2000 tap operation into something that's more of a commercial scale. What's our next question, Adam? Yeah, here's a question we received from a sugar maker, and he asked, can I mix in some 2022 thick maple syrup with some 2023 sap and reboil all of it. So first, Aaron, why might somebody want to mix different batches of syrup? And second, what are the regulations and guidelines surrounding this practice? Do you want to take a crack at this one, Aaron? Yeah, I'll take a crack at this one, Adam. So regarding the first part of the question, there are a number of reasons why you might want to blend different syrups. And this is a common practice in the industry, and that's it's perfectly acceptable to blend your syrups. And reasons you might want to do that are for flavor quality, or if you're making maple confections, you might want to get the right invert sugar content so that your your maple candies or your cream will crystallize properly. Or you might be trying to achieve the right color grade. Another reason why you might want to blend syrups is to correct density, as in the case with this questioner. So those are all different reasons why you can blend your syrups. And fortunately, we have a tool that makes this really easy on our website. So if you go to cornellmaple.com and look at our calculators, we actually have a separate calculator for blending invert sugar, color grade, and density. So you can just punch in the numbers of the syrups that you have that you want to blend and figure out what the right ratio is to blend to achieve the invert sugar level or color grade or the density that you want. Now, one thing to keep in mind is if you're buying in someone else's syrup and then you're blending it with your own, then you would need to do that in a licensed kitchen. So that would be the only restriction on blending syrup is that if you're blending someone else's syrup with your own, then you would need to do that with a a licensed food processing facility. 
Yeah, those are great points, Aaron. You know, and just following up on the specific question and thinking about this density that certainly, you know, the the bottom line is it wouldn't hurt to take some of that higher density syrup from last year and blend it in with sap that's being reboiled. There is, you know, maybe a slight chance that it might make a little bit darker syrup because it's cooking more and kind of caramelizing more, but um, it should still make fine tasting syrup as long as it tasted fine, which you're mixing in. And I guess the the couple of caveats to this whole thing are are first that not all the relationships that we're talking about here are linear. And what I mean by that is invert sugar and density, when you're blending those syrups together, it's a very linear relationship. So if you had one part syrup that had that was 50% sugar and you blended it with one part of syrup that was 100% sugar, just for hypothetically speaking, then you would get a finished blend that was 75% sugar. So that's a linear relationship with the density and invert sugar both. But with color grade, it is not a linear relationship. It's a logarithmic relationship. So a very small amount of dark syrup will increase the darkness of a large amount of light syrup quite a lot. So that's one that is a little trickier. If you're blending for color grades, be aware that it just takes a small amount of dark syrup to make a lighter syrup much darker. So you'll definitely want to pay attention to that calculation when you do it. And the other caveat is just that the final factor that we mentioned, which was flavor quality, is totally qualitative. That's something that you will have to experiment with with small batches if you want to blend syrups for the right flavor attributes. That one just can't be calculated. But other than that, you can go to our website and pull up these calculators and they'll really help you out. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you you brought that up because blending different grades can be a little bit tricky. So those calculators are, are really handy for that. Well, Aaron, should we finish up with one more question? Yeah, let's close out with a question we often get regarding access to our facilities for tours and events. Adam, do you want to go first and talk about the Eline Forest? Sure. At the Eline Forest, we're in Lake Placid, located not too far outside of the Olympic Village. We're always happy to have folks stop by and visit. I do recommend usually that people call ahead just to make sure we're not out in the woods or off doing something else that we're not down by the sugar house. But, you know, as long as you call ahead and make an appointment, we're happy to show folks around and discuss and talk maple. We we love talking maple, so stop by at any point. Or if you're in the area and you don't get a chance to call, certainly stop by. We have folks visiting all the time. We're kind of unique because we are in a tourist area that we get people from all over the world that stop by and visit the Eline Maple Research Forest. And that's kind of neat to be able to educate folks on maple that are from parts of the world that don't even know what maple tastes like. And so we enjoy that part of what we do here. Um, We actually recently installed what we're calling kind of a self-guided maple tour, where we actually had a series of videos made last year during the maple season. And we have a TV on the outside of our sugar house now. It's kind of like a museum where you can hit buttons and watch the different videos. We have different videos kind of broken up on how sap flows, turning that sap into syrup, even talking about some of our other trees that we tap, and even, you know, ways that you can use maple and other food products beyond, you know, the typical pancake topper. So we have that out there for folks who are in the area and stop by. If we're not able to talk with them or give them tours, they can watch those videos on their own. And we have a little trail through our sugar bush where people can go hike through and get a feel for what a sugar bush and these kind of NATO ecosystems that we collect our sap from. So we highly encourage visitors to stop by and see what we're up to. 
What about down at the Arnott Forest, Aaron? Do you have folks stop by? Well, I just got to say before I talk about the Arnott Maple Lab that I am so jealous of the E-Line facility. And if folks haven't been up there, definitely check it out. The E-Line Maple Research Forest is located right in the heart of the High Peaks region. From the field at the top of the E-Line, you can actually see the ski jumps at the Olympic Complex. You can see Mount Marcy and the high peaks of the Adirondacks. It's really beautiful. So I'm jealous, Adam. If you ever want to trade jobs, I'm totally game. <laughs> Thanks. I'm happy where I am, Aaron. I am fortunate that I get to live in a very beautiful area. But unfortunately, I don't have as many acres as you have. You have a much bigger forest and a lot more areas to play around. Yeah. So the one thing we do have at the Arnott Forest is lots of acres. So our facility is located in the 4,300-acre Arnott Teaching and Research Forest, just south of the Cornell University campus in Ithaca, New York. Our Maple Lab, however, is a little less easy to visit than Adam's facility up in the Adirondacks. We have a new facility. It was an old building that was used for other purposes, and we renovated it and created our new Maple Lab there. Accessibility is a little bit limited, especially in the winter. It's down a steep driveway that often becomes icy. and The lab itself isn't quite set up for tours. It's more of a research facility. It's got sterile, white, washable walls, so it's not as aesthetically pleasing, but it's it's easy for us to maintain. And we don't really have a a good flow for visitors. So we're a little bit limited on our capacity to have visitors, but we welcome tours when we're able to accommodate them. And if someone wants to come down and see how our system works and see what technologies we're using right now, They can go ahead and contact me through my email and we'll try to set something up. So I'm not discouraging visitors from the Arnott Maple Lab. I just want to manage expectations a little bit. We're happy to have visitors when we can accommodate them. It's just not always possible, especially during the sugaring season. But if you're in the area, you're welcome to stop by and walk through the Arnott Forest. It's a beautiful 4,000 acres. That's almost six and a half square miles. If you're have a hard time kind of visualizing what 4,300 acres looks like. And it's crisscrossed with some nice forest roads and some really beautiful, just beautiful scenery. So stop by if you're in the area. Yeah, it is a beautiful forest and neat to see there's a lot more going on, you know, beyond just maple. There's a lot of neat forest management practices and research projects happening there as well. That's right. It's not just maple research. It's our, our research forest. So we're doing a lot of forestry research as well. Well, that's probably enough for today, Aaron. What do you think? I suppose that is enough for today, but we have plenty of questions left in the mailbag, so stay tuned for future episodes to hear answers to your questions on Sweet Talk, All Things Maple. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear your maple question answered on the air, enter your question on the Spotify app now or go to www.cornellmaple.com to submit your question. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk. All Things Maple with Aaron and Adam. Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Maple Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on All Things Maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.